Hey there, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Horn Call Podcast. My name is James Bolden. I'm the IHS Publications Editor and your host. We are getting really close, everyone, to IHS 55 in Montreal, Canada. I hope that if you're listening to this podcast, you will also be attending uh, what's going to be a really, really fantastic symposium. And uh, I'm sorry if you won't be able to make it there, but uh, you can hopefully follow along with all of the updates uh, online and social media and through the IHS uh, website. Today's episode is with Dr. Margaret McGillivray, a Canadian-born but now living in America hornist who is a very active freelancer in the Washington, D.C., Maryland, Virginia area, and uh, she's on faculty at the Duke Ellington School of the Arts in Washington, D.C., and has been instrumental in creating a really wonderful new collection of solos for horn by living American composers. It's called Called Lift uh, Music for Horn by Black Composers, and it's available through Cimarron Music. Margaret and I have a a really good conversation today talking about her musical background, her upbringing, um, her work in the uh, D.C., Maryland, Virginia area, as well as this wonderful new project. So I hope you enjoy my conversation today with Margaret McGillivray. But uh, yeah, Margaret, thanks so much for joining me today. And for anybody who doesn't know you, I think a good way to get into our conversation would be for you to give us kind of the brief synopsis of what you're doing right now in the world of music or out of the world of music. Sometimes it's interesting when people are balancing careers in various areas. Um, And so from there, we can kind of get into uh, what you're currently doing. Sure. Um, So my name is Margaret McGillivray. I come from the beautiful country of Canada, but I've been transplanted in the U.S. now for the last 13 or so years. Um, I went to a bunch of places for school, and we can talk about that later if you want. Um, I am currently a freelance musician in the Baltimore, Washington, Maryland, Virginia, all over that kind of DMV area. Mm -hmm. And I am also the instructor of horn at Duke Ellington School of the Arts, which is a performing arts academy in D.C., high school level, but pretty dang amazing. And its mission is to bring the arts to underserved populations. Mm. I have a pretty large, active private studio, and I also have a degree in piano. So I sometimes that pops up and I gig on that as well. But my whole career is music based, which is pretty cool. I get to do this for a living all the time. That I, I'm so envious of people that like teach an instrument that, but then can also accompany their students. It's like, it's oh, so I would handy. I'm sure it's yeah. I'm sure it comes in very handy. I'm sure you stay very busy. <laughs> yes, um, I. That's probably one of the biggest problems right now for me is I'm trying to figure out how to streamline my life and my income streams and all that kind of stuff into something that makes a little bit more sense and is a little less chaotic because I also have three children and a partner that I adore and a very lovely English setter named Lefsa. And sometimes they don't see me. There's like swaths of time where they're just like, oh, she's gone. So it would be really, yeah, (laughs) it would be nice to figure that out a little bit better. But in the meantime, I'm just breaking rocks and doing what you do. (laughs) Well, that's good. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong. I want to talk a little bit about the Duke Ellington School. Is that where Dave Chappelle went to school? Yes. Okay. Oh, yeah. yes. <laughs> yeah. I thought that name sounded familiar. So, yeah. And I think he there was um, 
something I saw where he he went there and you know just kind of hung out at the school. It looks like a beautiful campus. Uh, you want to chat a little bit about how that came about? You working there so and he, what it's like. He comes by every once in a while. Um, I have to say the Duke Ellington School, since it was completely rebuilt um, five, six years ago, before I started there. Uh And it's one of the most beautiful buildings I think I've ever seen. Like, it definitely did not look like the place where I went to high school. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's got this sort of egg-shaped structure hanging. looks like it's suspended in the middle of the school, and that's the theater. Oh, wow. Like, it is just kind of a stupendous place. If you're ever in D.C., the outside looks like the White House. Mm. And then the inside is just a really interesting architectural feat of of engineering, and they've managed to kind of make it work. It's it's a taller building. It's not like a two story high school structure or anything okay. like that. Um, and it's right in the middle of Georgetown, so it's it's really really pretty. Wow. And it's the facilities. Like I also did not have. We did not have separate rooms for the band and the orchestra and the choir and right. and different studios for all the tech teachers and there's just so many resources that these kids have are able to use and they do like it's really Mm -hmm. kind of astounding what they can get their hands on once they get into the institution okay so it's a performing arts high school is it like ninth ninth through 12th grade or ninth through 12th it's audition only um i would say my students most of them actually start in ninth grade because dcps doesn't necessarily have the most robust music education programs in the middle schools. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the band programs have been cut or moved or changed. And so horn is not commonly taught in DC public schools and middle schools. So I often find myself starting a new kid. Um, I currently have a studio of five Mm -hmm. and this is crazy. I see them three times a week. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. So I can, I, I feel pretty confident. Like I can take a kid starting the summer before ninth grade. And if they want to get ready to go to music school, we can get there because it's so intensive. Yeah. And so there's music and theater and dance and, you know, all, I would assume all aspects of the performing arts. Yes. Offered. And then okay. also like visual arts and okay. museum studies. There's also a really robust um, literary creative writing program. So it's, it's, I think there's there's sort of eight majors, and when you graduate, you get your high school diploma, but you can also get what they call an arts diploma, and it's basically mm-hmm. an endorsement saying that you've gone through all of these more specialized courses, and they haven't just been extracurricular for you. Right, right. Well, and for anybody who's listening maybe outside of the United States or not familiar with uh, who Duke Ellington was, I'm sure you've heard the name, but he was originally from Washington, D.C., and yes. you know, very, very famous jazz uh, pianist and had a, a band in in the 20s, 30s, and 40s and just sort of raised the level of jazz to like a true art music. And so that that's the name that the school bears. Yes. Yes. And it's pretty amazing. There's an amazing mural of him down in the cafeteria and it's with these sort of pointillistic dot structures and then yes, Lord on the, on the, on the wall. It's just, it's such an inspiring place to go to work. Like just, that's really cool. You feel really lucky to be in that building and doing what we, what we yeah. do. And and then, so you're balancing that with what is a, a from what I've told, been told, I have, have had friends and, and colleagues that live in and work in that area. It's a pretty, pretty busy freelancing scene. If you get in with, you know, some of the orchestras in, uh, in, in that area, cause it's, there's a lot of people and there's a lot going on in terms of the arts, you know, the Kennedy center and all of those things yeah. happening there. Yeah, so I've played with National, I play with Baltimore pretty regularly, um, Maryland Symphony, Annapolis Symphony, mm-hmm. just 
there's an opera company that I hang out with sometimes. It's like a smaller opera company. And then I'm also a rostered musician with the Lancaster Symphony in Lancaster, mm-hmm. La- Lancaster Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm, I'm running around a fair bit and every week is something different, which is, it's kind of cool. And that helps. I, I, I love variety. And so I think it's, it's actually a really great place for me to be because I can do all kinds of different stuff over the course of the season or the year. Cool. Well, let me not to not to belabor the point, but let can we talk about how you so you grew up in Canada, right? I did. Where in Canada? So I was born out west in Saskatchewan. Um, okay. Basically, where the wheat belt ends and it becomes okay. forest and mining. And then when I was seven, we moved to Newmarket, Ontario, which is about forty minutes north of Toronto. So I basically spent most of my growing up time and years okay. in the Toronto suburbs, and I played with the Toronto Symphony Youth Orchestra. Um, did a lot of piano stuff. I went to, I didn't go to an arts high school, but I went to a very music focused school mm-hmm. and they've since become an arts high school. Like they were kind of teed up to do that. So yeah, after that, I went to McGill and did mm-hmm. my undergrad there and I studied with Jean Gaudreau and John Zerbel and then found myself in grad school um, at Northwestern. So I got mm-hmm. to study with Gail Williams and Bill Barnowitz. And then after that, I actually went to Germany for eight years. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Tell, tell me about that. That was interesting because um, my husband and I, we got married, we, I moved over there and we were never sure that we were staying. And so I think Mm. I would have approached it very differently had I known, oh, you're going to spend a good chunk of time here. But it was sort of like in these nine to 12 month segments that we knew Uh. we would be staying. So yeah, it was, it was both strange and wonderful. And I I call that period of my life when I was semi-retired in Germany, living in (laughs) Europe. (laughs) <laughs> living, having the worst time. No, it was amazing. Um, but I did some playing over there. I just never really kind of got into the auditioning scene because it was in my kind of in my head that I didn't, I wasn't going to stay. I see. And then we did end up not staying. So after that, uh, we moved to Arizona and I did my DMA with Danny Katzen at the University of Arizona. Uh-huh. And then my husband got a job with a field band here, like 13 miles away over at Fort Meade. Uh-huh. And so that's how we ended up in Maryland. Yeah, that's that's a really good gig and a lot of lot of time on the road with the field band from what I understand. Yes. Yes, <laughs> lots and lots of travel. So he retired almost 2 years ago now, which is amazing and crazy that he's in his 40s and he's already retired. From- hey, that's the military. Yeah, that's <laughs> Yeah, it's it's nuts. So, yeah, we're trying to we're sort of exploring our next steps. He is too and yeah, we're we're kind of having some fun figuring all that out. Oh, that's cool. And so are you one of the many Canadian expats who have dual citizenship? Is that, did that work out? Okay. I do. I actually got dual citizenship during COVID. Okay. Yeah. Which was interesting because you have to like go through the whole process, but you're masked and everybody's Uh masked. And I don't, my family wasn't allowed to be there for the swearing in ceremony. And it was really, it was weird. And then I, promptly lost I lost my citizenship certificate in a renovation like six months later. Like it was just kind of a comedy of errors. So yeah, I I did. And the main reason I did, and this is terrible to say, but it was pretty much the same cost to get citizenship as it was to renew my green card. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. just sort of made more sense to me. And then I get to vote and they can't kick sure. me out yeah. and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah. You and Will Arnett. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, they can't kick me out now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's really cool. And, uh, you know, getting back to the topic of horn plague, there's just so many great Canadian hornists. I mean, just going back through history. And uh, Louis-Philippe wrote a really nice article in, uh, I 
I think it was maybe the October 2022 horn call about sort of uh, just kind of an overview of the Canadian horn school and all of these great mm-hmm. Canadian hornets. Some of some people may not even know that they were Canadian. They just were sort of big names in the horn world and then just happens to be that they're from Canada. So um, it's it's so fun to like read those articles and then also like to nerd out and be like, oh, I went to school with that guy because um, yeah, I would sure. put Louis Philippe on that list now, too, which is uh-huh. Man, he worked so hard. He was such a hard worker in undergrad. Well, he wasn't in undergrad, I don't think, when I was. I think he's a little older. But, yeah, such a cool guy. Yeah, yeah. And he's it sounds like he's got a lot on his plate right now as well. Yes. <laughs> Getting ready for the, the symposium. But um, so that kind of brings me around to this recent project, but that it's a project that was a long time in the making called Lift, which is a collection of... Uh, it's not necessarily easy solos, but there's a range of difficulty levels meant to be uh, accessible to a variety of hornets, you know, from, you know, less experienced all the way up to there's some really, truly professional level solos in that book for for horn and piano accompaniment. Um, yeah. I mean, there, there's a lot we could say kind of just in summary of the book, but why don't you just tell us a little bit about how this came about, what it took to really get it to where it is now, which is it's published, it's out there. Everybody should go buy a copy, either digitally or in print. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So this has been, I think this was, this was a little bit of a pandemic project, but not really. I've been thinking about this for years, at least as far back as 2015. Mm -hmm. So my studio here in Howard County is mostly minority people of color. Mm -hmm. My studio at Ellington is, is a hundred percent people of color. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I love them dearly. I want them to feel like they have some skin in the game and that they they have some buy-in other than the horn is a great instrument and you're making a great sound and isn't that wonderful and listen to this soundtrack by John Williams because it's awesome. Um, So I was getting requests and I was feeling the frustration of not being able to fulfill those requests of, Mm -hmm. hey, can I play something by someone that looks like me? Exactly, yeah. And... There's some amazing pieces written for horn, but like it's kind of written for you and I. It's it's written mm-hmm. for the people that have done a lot of school, a lot of studying, a lot of practice. And I wanted to have something that included things for them that they could even play in their first year of study that maybe they can play to audition for colleges and conservatories. That's something, things that are going to sound impressive or capture their imagination or inspire them to do something cool. So, um, yeah, I think... This was like 2021. We had just finished online juries with Ellington. Howard mm-hmm. County had just done their online solo ensemble. So we're already feeling deflated by all the online, yeah. all the things. And then I still had this familiar sensation of, okay, now it's time to pick new rep for the second part of the, the year. And it's all the same things. And of course, I like variety. I get bored easily. So yeah, I had a very pivotal phone call with Joanna Ross Hersey. Mm-hmm who was then president of the International Women's Brass Conference. And I told her my idea and I said, I, I really just want these kids to have things to play by people who look like them. Mm-hmm. And, and she was all for it. She was incredibly encouraging. She immediately said, hey, if you want to do this, I will give you $1,000 to get started. And I, mm-hmm. my eyes kind of popped in my head because I don't think I thought that other people would be that supportive. Mm. And I think also I was waiting for so long because I expected someone else to do it and nobody did. Mm-hmm. So it's 
that's really where the active part of this got started was, I guess now two and a bit years ago. Uh-huh. And then I started talking to people like Jeff Scott and Shinny Strickland and, and, and lightly stalking people on social media. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I was really struck by how it was not hard to find amazing composers and especially I, I, because of my budget and how I was structuring this first initial attempt, I, I could not afford the Jesse Montgomery's of this world. Mm-hmm. She's amazing, but I just don't have that kind of cash. But up and coming young composers of color are there. They are out there. They are smart and savvy with social media and all kinds of stuff. It is not hard. It mm-hmm. is a simple Google search away. So yeah, I just, I, after a little bit of stalking and a little bit of research, I found some really lovely people to work with and had mm-hmm. some amazing conversations. And then we started the fundraising part of it. They were already writing. That was a huge leap of faith for me. I'm a very, like, I want to have all my ducks in a row before <laughs> anything happens. Sure. And that was a really tricky thing to be like, okay, start writing. And I hope by the time you're done, we have money for you. Mm-hmm. Um, but we did. Um, I led a very successful crowdfunding campaign on Indiegogo, and we also had other streams coming in. People were seeing it on Indiegogo, but it was actually less fees to do it through another right, few right. different platforms. Um, I also won a grant from the Maryland State Arts Council. So huge shout out to them for just going, oh, yeah, for sure. You, you need this. Let's That's do this. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, and it, it, I love their grant process. It is not an onerous one. That's good. So I yeah. wish I wish that more granting organizations were taking down a few more barriers because some of them I saw and I was like, that would be a great fit for this project. But oh my gosh, I do not have time to. It's like a tax audit, basically. Yes. <laughs> yes. So that's tricky. Um, but yeah, the this fundraising went really well, like far better than I expected. And we actually ended up a little bit overfunded so that when it came time last February to do the world premiere, I was actually able to fly in a few of the composers to be oh, there. That's awesome. And my students got to meet the composer, the, like the pieces they were playing, which mm-hmm. was just mind blowing. And the pictures from that just make my heart sing every time we see it. So that's kind of, I, I did, I, did I answer the question? I think I no, did. no, that's great. And I, I was just going to say, do you? So, for people who might not be familiar with with what we're talking about, we're talking about a consortium, basically, where the money is put together from various sources. There's not one big chunk or one big check that pays for all of the project all at once. It's and that, to be honest, that's the way most things are. Is you're putting together funding from different places. Um, do you have any tips for other people who might? be inspired by this and want to go do something similar in terms of, well, how did you even like approach these composers? Did you just say, Hey, we want to pay you to write music. Are you in, you know, how did, how did you go about building the, the network of people and then encouraging supporters to give their money to something like this? Because let's face it, there's so many other things one can give money to. And so many of them are worthy, but then you're basically asking, okay, give some of your hard-earned money to this project. Yeah. So I think what I had going for me with this project is that it hadn't been done before. Mm -hmm. Like there's a complete gaping hole where some of this repertoire I hope is going to help to fill it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that was kind of important. And where I just started once I had that first call with Joanna was I just started 
after I picked a few people and I did have a few composers turn me down. They just couldn't because of scheduling or mm -hmm. they're like, yeah, I can't work for that little money. Right. <laughs> I was like, right. okay, I understand. Um, and I also, on the flip side of that, when I talked to some of the composers, they were very, very reticent to take a fee because they oh, felt wow. so passionately in this project. And I don't think he'll mind me saying so, but Jeff Scott was one of those people. I kind of had to like browbeat him into taking money because <laughs> I was like, no, you have to get paid for this. This is important. Right. Um, but I think with the composers anyway, it started with a conversation mm -hmm. and people are people, mm -hmm. at least in my experience and composers are people. And if they don't respond to your email, well, that's fine. Just move on. Sure. But it just started with an email and then said, hey, could we have a call? Could we have a Zoom chat? And I would explain what I was passionate about and what I wanted to do and and how I wanted to do it. And if they thought that I was absolutely crazy, then they would say no. But luckily, when when we got to the Zoom chatty phone call -y part with every one of them, they all said yes. They all mm -hmm. signed on to my crazy train and was like, yes, let's let's do this. Um, so I think I was very lucky mm -hmm. for a couple of reasons, partially because there's this gap in the literature and also because I just happened to luck out and, and ask some of the most amazing people to sign on to write for it. So I, that was really cool. Um, in terms of the crowdfunding, so it's, it's amazing when you just ask people, mm -hmm. Um, one of the people who sponsored a composition was Joan Watson, a fantastic right. horn player yep. in Canada. I, I happened to ask Scott Irvin, her husband, I was like, hey, do you think maybe you might be interested in sponsoring a piece in memory of Joan? Mm -hmm. And he was like, immediately, yes. And he's a composer and arranger himself. He's done a lot of it. And so he was fussy about who he wanted to sponsor, which was kind of adorable. And he had to go on all the composer websites and check out all their samples of work. And mm -hmm. But he was doing his due diligence, but he was so excited about the project. And he said, this is exactly what I want to do for Joan and her memory and her legacy. And he's like, you're doing the thing that I want you to do. So it, it your network is sometimes bigger than you think mm. and sometimes more generous than you think. In fact, I would say almost all the time it's more generous than you think. And that's a tricky thing because human nature is like, well, nobody wants to hear what I'm doing. Nobody wants to fund what I'm doing. Nobody wants to, but I don't think it's actually true. I think it's just a story we tell ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he's an example of just a wonderful sponsor that just dove in and caught the vision again immediately. Um, the crowdfunding was weird for me because I had no idea, but we had donations ranging from $5 mm -hmm. all the way up to $2,500. That's, that's great. And some of that was like connections from way back yonder in my life. <laughs> um, just to give you an example, there was this wonderful woman who gave me a rather sizable donation and she had sung in a choir that I had played for in Germany. Mm. I haven't seen her in 15 years. Yeah. Yeah. But she's now living in Texas and she's like, this is what I want to support. And I think you're doing a great thing. So I think if your motivations are pretty pure, and I think mine were, and your passion slash frustration is very focused <laughs> and you can explain it pretty well, mm -hmm. I think that really helps people to kind of draw in. And I've, I've talked about this a lot. Like it's not just people giving money. We're actually creating a community around this. Exactly. Yeah. 
And I think that's really important. It's important to have a community around it. So it doesn't just feel like a one-off thing and it doesn't just feel like, well, okay, that's great. Now we've checked that box and we can just move on to our own little worlds sure, again. Yeah. So staying in touch with people, which is tricky for me. I'm I'm horrible with correspondence, but staying in touch with people, reminding them that the project exists. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I think and you're one of these people. Um, having this regional ambassador program mm-hmm. kind of running alongside and inviting people to promote this book in their own way, in their own areas, getting the word out in in various different ways, and especially mouth like word of mouth kind mm-hmm. of thing going along yeah. is super important because I can. I can pontificate from my social media perch all I want, but if your students hear, this is awesome, you should play this piece, mm-hmm. chances are they're going to, because they're like, well, I, I trust sure. him and I believe him. So that's another way. And then that gets passed down through right, their students for sure. and, and through their networks. And, and so it's like the best kind of trickle-down music economics. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I have kind of two related questions to that. So, so if you've been listening to this and you're like, okay, I want to get my hands on a copy. So who publishes it? And you know, where, where's the best and most effective way to, to get, get your hands on a copy of this collection. So there's a few different places. Um, but I would say the easiest place is to go to Cimarron music press. Mm-hmm. Um, Brian Doughty is the publisher and mm-hmm. he did a lovely, lovely version of it. Although of course we've now found like three errors. <laughs> that's just that's just the way it is. Anytime, anytime. Just the way it is. you, you yeah. proofread it a million times, and then as soon as it goes to print, you're like, "Oh, yes, I see something else." <laughs> but I'm sure, like, I I have like a list of things that I would like to like just tweak on it, and maybe he'll let me if he's not too sick and tired of me doing. That oh yeah, I think he would editions. be open to that. Yeah. Um, but Brian Doughty has been a dream to work with, and he has a site, Simran Music Press, so you can actually get a physical copy, which is gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Um, the artwork from that is a graphic artist from Minnesota, and she is just tremendous. I just love her so much, and I love mm-hmm. her work. Or you can get a PDF copy and have it immediately and not mm-hmm. have to have anything mailed. Um, he offers both options on the site, and it could not – it's basically like easy, clicky-dicky, just go. That's great. Yeah. yeah. And is it – it's 12 composers? How 12 many living, 12 living okay. composers, uh-huh. and then there's six transcriptions. So there's 18 pieces in total. Yeah, and it's really well priced. I mean, for what you're getting, which is like there's enough material in there to just keep you busy for a long time. And it's just there are pieces that younger students or less experienced students could play for, you know, a a studio recital or, you know, recitals at at a younger level. And then there are some sort of graduate level compositions that would really challenge even a, a very skilled hornet. So I think it, it runs runs the gamut of of difficulty. Yeah. Well, the model was sort of Mason Jones, mm-hmm. Souls for the Horn Player, the book that everybody has. And it's sort of the same, it's the same thing in that there's some transcriptions at the beginning, and then you go all the way up to Villanelle. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so that was kind of the idea that w- there's a variety in there, but the bulk of it is sort of level four, level five, mm-hmm. hitting your sort of hotshot high school player. Mm-hmm. Um, and for my own students at Ellington, they actually have to have at least a Nisman level five slash mm-hmm. six on their senior recitals. And so one of the requirements that I'm now including on the syllabus for my Ellington students is that they have to include a piece from this collection on their senior recital, which they're all happy to do. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Since at least four of them already gave a world premiere from the book. 
which is now when, cool when did that happen? Because that was live streamed, right? The the premiere of the <sighs> the book. Yes, yes, it was live streamed, and there were some issues with the live stream, and I'm still upset about it. Uh, so that was February 28th. Okay. And we uh, did uh, 2023. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It feels like it was two years ago, but it wasn't. It was this year. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So the, we did a world premiere event, and that was also the publication launch. Mm-hmm. Three of the composers flew out from their various places to come and hang with us. And four of my Ellington students gave world premieres that night. And in between, mm-hmm. I would premiere. I think I did six by myself, and then they mm-hmm. did four other ones. So we we did actually a good sampling of the book. And unfortunately, we had a big technical glitch. I didn't know this when I stepped on stage, but the whole system had crashed at 6.40. And the recitals was to start at 7. And there was literally one box that did not get checked. So it looked really good. The the speaking and the scripted stuff sounded really great, but the in-house sound did not make it into the live stream. It was like super, super quiet. So I have, I have, yeah, I've experienced that exact same thing. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Super upsetting. And the chat was disabled so that people couldn't tell us, Hey, Hey, we don't have any sound. And then Ellington is my mostly steel and concrete structure and Mm -hmm. the performance hall where we were doing all these lovely world premieres is in the basement. And so there's no reception down there. Uh Uh-huh. So when I left the building at about nine that night, my phone just blew up as soon as oh, I, I bet. Yeah. stepped out of the building. I was like, oh, crap. <laughs> <laughs> no. And it's like lovely, well-meaning, hey, just in case you haven't heard yet, we can't hear you play. Right. It's very soft. And I was like, no. But it, you live and learn and and there's just, you can't, it's, it was a big lesson in the whole thing that you cannot control everything. No, no. And I mean, this is not, I'm sure this is not a one and done kind of thing. I mean, I, I'm going to program a piece from the book on a recital this fall and do a little tour. So that'll be my contribution to being an ambassador to try to, to get that out there. And I, I just have a feeling, Margaret, that it's going to, stuff from this book is going to start showing up if it hasn't already on state festival lists for solo and ensemble. And all you really need, I'm not going to name names, but there are a few key states. We all know what they are. There's a few Mm -hmm. key states where if they pick up that solo and it ends up on that list, everybody else is going to follow along because those states are sort of the trendsetters in terms of that sort of thing. Yes. And so that's actually my hope. And I have some people working in those few key states to get Mm -hmm. them on those lists and get them approved and get them leveled appropriately. Um, I'm also going to be presenting selections from the book at IHS this summer. That was awesome. Super excited about that. So you'll definitely hear the Canadian composers who were included in the collection Mm -hmm. on that recital. And then a few other people because fun. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm so excited to go back to Montreal and be able to play again and get to play from this crazy project that I did. <laughs> well, you're going to be a resource in high demand because you will know your way around and it it's sounds really it sounds like an amazing event and I you know, I just want to encourage anybody that hasn't registered for IHS 55, think about it and you should really take a trip up to Montreal this summer. So, yeah. I guess I've just I've committed this to coming out now before IHS 55. So that's, <laughs> yes, that's good. Have. That's good inspiration though, for me to just get the editing done and get it out there. So, perfect. perfect. Um, but so w- what's next in terms of this project or for anything else that, that you're doing professionally? So for this project, um, the next big thing is actually recording it, mm-hmm. getting a professional recording out. I have a wonderful collaborative pianist who signed on to the project 
and we're still figuring out sort of a few venue things and and mm-hmm. labels and so a few of those details um so but that is the next project and that's going to happen this summer that's awesome um hell yeah. or high water basically <laughs> because <laughs> um, you know if they show up on a on a state festival list the first thing and these are you know these are current students the first thing they're going to do is go to youtube yep. and see if they can find Absolutely. the recording so they can listen to an example that's just yeah people can you know, say what they will about it, but that's just how students do things these days. And we just kind of have to get with the program. (laughs) Yeah. And I, like I do with my own students, go to YouTube and listen, Mm -hmm. download every single version you can find by a good professional horn player of your piece, and then put that on your playlist and just listen to it ad nauseum because let's get it in your ears. It's, it's an amazing resource that we didn't have when we were in school. Mm -hmm. So I, Hey, we had to go to the library and sign up the CD (laughs) and sit there and listen to no. I'm presenting in a few places this summer. Uh, One is the DC Horn Camp, which is happening in like two weeks. And then the week after, I'll be presenting at Kendall Betts Horn Camp. Oh, Um, cool. I'm going to be zooming in and chatting about the project. And then IHS and then recording. And the next big thing that I will also be working on this summer is establishing a nonprofit. Mm to support this kind of work, commissioning, especially for brass instruments, because that's what I love, but maybe potentially other wind instruments um, to really kind of fill in some gaps in the repertoire to champion historically underrepresented composers and historically marginalized musicians. And then the other data point that I kind of found out, and honestly, I feel sort of stupid, it didn't occur to me. Um, When I was in Arkansas at the Mid-South Horn Workshop Mm -hmm. with uh, Kate, Katie Halbert. Mm-hmm. One of the data points that came up that was really interesting was that this could be rejected by a state music education association for their festival list because of equity. Mm. And I kind of, my head just sort of exploded for a second. And I was like, listen, what do you mean? Cause I think when people make statements like that, you need to get a little curious before you get defensive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they basically said, well, if it's not in most high schools, if there isn't a reference copy in most high schools in the state, you're going to have a mm-hmm. really hard time selling it to the music association committee that approves all this because they want kids to at least have a reference copy, if not have a copy that they can use for free so they don't have to go out and buy it. Sure. And I know that we talked about like this is a very reasonably priced collection. You mm-hmm. get a lot of bang for your buck. It's only $35. Mm-hmm. Um but if you don't have that $35 and you're using school instrument and all of your resources are coming from the school and you, you really don't have, you don't have the money to get it on your own, then yeah, mm-hmm. it, it is kind of an equity issue. So I think also providing access to these kinds of things and these resources for as many people as we can. Mm-hmm. And Brian Doughty, love him, but he shouldn't be donating more copies than he's already donated. Mm-hmm. He needs to actually run his business as well and be paid appropriately for what he's doing. Just like I want the composers who are involved in these projects to be paid appropriately for what they're doing. It's very important to me that we're not just doing this a little bit willy nilly and being like, oh, well, eventually, maybe. And no, let's let's start it off on the right foot because art needs to be compensated. Art is Mm -hmm. work. And it's incredibly meaningful work and incredibly necessary work, but it is work. So Mm -hmm. yeah. So I kind of snapped my head around and went, okay, so now we have to fundraise to make sure that right. 90% of the high schools in Arkansas have this book. Yep. Yeah. 
So that feels like a challenge instead of like, oh, I can't do this. Like, <laughs> never going to happen. No, we don't need to roll over. We just need to find the solution to go around the mountain instead of through it or whatever the case may be. Yeah, well, and I, I would venture to say that's the case in a lot of places. And it's because, you know, once certain repertoire or collections of repertoire become entrenched on a solo list for a state, it's like, well, let's just use the same book we've been using for the last mm -hmm. 45 years. Every band director's got a copy and they just, you know, whatever, it's the same old stuff. And, you know, change is hard. <laughs> it takes effort and but a lot of times it really does need to happen. And so, and it's, I tell people too, it's like, it's not like we're trying to replace the standard repertoire. You're just simply no. providing another option that is a hundred percent viable and a hundred percent worthwhile from an educational standpoint, as well as artistically. It's students need to play music by living composers, period. Because yes. at one time Mozart was alive and people played his music and he was alive. So, I mean, it makes total sense that you should play music by composers that are still alive. <laughs> yes. And like I've said to a bunch of people, I was like, it's not pie. <laughs> there's right. enough, there's enough for everybody to go around just because I'm putting this out into the world does not mean that so-and-so gets less. It's actually that it expands everything and there's more opportunity and, I, like, I don't see how this takes away from anybody. Mm -hmm. And I obviously, I'm very, very indebted and grateful to the composers that I studied and played as an mm -hmm. undergraduate, as a graduate student. Like, I wouldn't be anywhere near where I am without those resources. Mm -hmm. Let's just make some more. That's awesome. Well, Margaret, thanks so much for speaking with me today. I don't want to take up too much of your time, but this has been a great conversation. Yeah, awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely.